Hi, everybody. It is Thursday, June 8th, and you are listening to the Mo News Podcast. I'm Jill Wagner. This is the place where we bring you just the facts. We read all the news and read between the lines so you don't have to. As you could tell, Mosh is off today, and I am happy to be joined by someone who is on the front lines of so many of the political stories that we talk about on this podcast every day. CBS News Senior White House Correspondent, Weijia Zhang. Hi, Weijia. Hi, Jill. Um, as you know, I am a longtime listener, first-time caller, <laughs> and I'm so excited to be here uh, with you today. So this is a real treat for me. Thanks for having oh me. Oh, my gosh. Thank you so much for doing this. Weja, I think we overlapped at CBS for a couple of years, but I was at the Stock Exchange and you were in D.C., so it's really nice to finally collaborate on something. Some background on Weijia for anyone who's unfamiliar. She has covered the White House for CBS since 2018, which means she was there for President Trump and now President Biden. Before that, she worked as a reporter for the CBS station in New York. She is an active member of the Asian American Journalists Association. She was born in China and immigrated to the U.S. when she was two years old. And she now lives in D.C. with her husband and their daughter and son, Okay, so there's your life in 30 <laughs> seconds. I hope I <laughs> I was okay. That sums it up pretty well. I do think that our kids are about the same age. Yeah, so Frankie Mae is four and a half. And as you know, that half is very important to her. And she is big sister to one-year-old baby Jack. He was born on May 1st. So I know you were just a little bit ahead of me. So I have a four and a half year old and then my son is actually 10 months old. So I'm slightly behind you, but it's basically the same oh, difference. Sorry, yeah. So it's, yeah, exactly. Because you know, and now we're still talking in months, 10 months, <laughs> yeah. 13 months, and then eventually they get to be two years and three years, whatever that is. So funny because with the second one, I, I lose track. And the second one is just so much different, as I'm sure you, you've you seen. At least for me, it has been. People ask me how old he is, and I'm like, hmm. To my With my daughter, I had it down to the hour. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> All right, let's get to some headlines here. We've got some air quality warnings across the northeastern United States, thanks to smoke from wildfires in Canada. When we might see blue skies again. And then there were 10 former Vice President Mike Pence and North Dakota Governor Doug Burgum announced their White House bids. Weijia has covered Pence and Trump, so we'll get her unique perspective on the race. Overseas, a follow up on the Ukraine dam collapse and what may have caused it. Experts now cautiously say that it was probably an internal blast that breached the dam. The head of CNN, Chris Licht, is out at the network. What it means for the future of CNN and cable news in general. And on a lighter note, coffee with a splash of olive oil. Starbucks is doubling down on its controversial new coffee line. And I will have on this day in history, or at least I will try to do on this day in history. All right, now to our top story. More than 55 million people across the northeastern United States are facing another day of serious air pollution and hazy skies. Courtesy of smoke from the Canadian wildfires, most of New York State is under an air quality health advisory alert. At one point Wednesday, the FAA issued a ground stop at New York's LaGuardia Airport because of all the smoke. Philadelphia was under a code red, which means vulnerable people are at risk. There are warnings as far south as Atlanta, and there are some forecasts that the D.C. area could be hit even worse than New York today. It is definitely a bit eerie here in New York at the moment. It smells like smoke or maybe a campfire. 
and not in a good way. New York's health commissioner is warning the elderly, pregnant women, anyone with health issues, and particularly children to stay inside. And if you have to go outside to wear a high quality mask like an N95, now, of course, there aren't really N95 masks for kids. Even indoors, experts are recommending an air purifier if you have one. New York City Mayor Eric Adams, he is keeping schools open, but without outdoor activities. In a press conference, he echoed what a lot of us are thinking. I went outdoors and basically said, you know, what the hell is this? You know, it was it was clear there was something different uh, that was happening in the city. So at one point, the air quality index soared past 324. That is the worst since the EPA started to record air quality measures back in 1999. And that means that it can have widespread negative effects, even among healthy people. That reading is similar and even worse to what we have seen in some of the smoggiest cities in the world, like Jakarta or New Delhi. Rarely do we see those levels in the United States. Again, this is all thanks to hundreds of fires that are burning in eastern Canada. They've been burning for weeks. As of early Wednesday, Canadian officials said there were 400 fires and more than 240 that are considered out of control. On Tuesday, the smoke from those fires started to drift south over parts of the Northeast and the Midwest. The big question, how long is this going to last? The National Weather Service says that it could linger for a couple more days because that weather system that pushed it south is pretty stagnant. It's also possible that the weather system could push the air further west, perhaps to Pennsylvania and Ohio later this week. And we should note the fire season unfortunately just got started. So forecasters say even as the smoke clears, we'll likely see more of this off and on throughout the summer. Uh, Weisha, you're in D.C. Are you seeing any of the effects there yet? So I was on a plane this morning from Mexico City to D.C. And after we touched down and I could see the horizon, I was pretty stunned because the skies are hazy. Um, you could see it was definitely impacted. Um, I turned on my phone and I got service and I saw that, you know, my daughter's school was sending out warnings not to go outside. It's pretty dystopian. Um, and I think we are bracing for an even worse day, like you mentioned here in DC, similar to what you guys have experienced. So I think that we certainly are already seeing the effects here. And um, I know our friends out West are used to this, but this is pretty new for, for us here on the East Coast, at least something this drastic. Totally. At Mo News, we were hearing from a lot of people on the West Coast who said this is something that they've kind of just learned to live with. And I didn't want to sound too dramatic, but looking out my window today really did feel like the end of the world. It was just a very horrible feeling. Um, It didn't take long for this to get political. Bernie Sanders tweeting, climate change makes wildfires more frequent and widespread. If we do nothing, this is our new reality. It's time to act. Is there any political reality where something gets done on climate change and the environment? So President Biden came in and made clear that, um, you know, his climate agenda was going to be at the top of his priority. And so far, you know, I think he's stuck to that. For example, when D.C. was hashing out that, you know, debt ceiling budget deal to make sure that we could pay our bills on time, that the U.S. wouldn't default, um, you know, there were provisions in there that were protected, provisions to make more electric vehicles and trucks more prevalent, um, things to tackle methane pollution. There were tax credits to go green, but there are a couple issues too in that bill specifically. Um, For example, 
one deciding factor for when and how quickly the country will be able to shift to renewables is the expansion of electricity transmission. And the agreement didn't include that. Critics also point to the fact that as part of this budget deal, it there was a fast-tracking um, move to make it easier for a controversial gas pipeline in West Virginia to be built. And so there's plenty of criticism from environmentalists that say the president um, gave too much. But overall, he is committed. I think he has made the point, though, from day one, that's what we're seeing Senator uh, Bernie Sanders echo is that he can't do it alone. Congress has to pass these laws and they have to approve money because these things take resources. And so the president, I think, you know, he's committed. He says he is on the international stage. When he goes to various summits, he promises um, allies that the U.S. is going to lead in this. But again, it takes time. It takes time for that money to funnel through. It takes time um, for charging stations to be built, as one example. But to your point, Jill, during the White House press briefing, um, the press secretary made very clear that you know, the White House believes this is just going to get worse over time and that they are really recommitting um, the climate change as one of the president's top priorities. Yeah, and a lot of environmental groups saying, uh, unfortunately, that we're running out of time here. Sticking with politics, and then there were 10. Former Vice President Mike Pence officially joined the 2024 Republican presidential race on Wednesday, his 64th birthday, by the way, which makes him a relative youngin, uh, as did North Dakota Governor Doug Burgum. So that brings us to 10 candidates on the GOP side. And it looks like, at least as of now, that the field is set. I want to start with Doug Burgum. He doesn't have quite the name recognition as the other candidates. He is the governor of North Dakota. Before that, a successful businessman. He led the company called Great Plains Software, which was later bought by Microsoft. He then founded a real estate development firm and a venture capital firm. He said he wants to run as an alternative to the extremism in the party and that the silent majorities are not represented well in politics. As governor, he has been socially conservative. He signed a near total ban on abortions. He wrote an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal this week outlining why he's running for president. If you are interested, I did link to that in our show notes. He says the economy and getting inflation under control are his top priorities. Now to Mike Pence. He is currently in Iowa, where he made his official announcement on Wednesday afternoon and then did a town hall with CNN last night. Pence wants to portray himself as a conservative on the economy and on social issues. He's been pretty popular among evangelical Christians who do show up for the caucuses. As for foreign policy, he is calling for more support for Ukraine, which is a bit different from some members of his party. And he went there when it comes to January 6th and President Trump. Take a listen. On that fateful day, President Trump's words were reckless. They endangered my family and everyone at the Capitol. But the American people deserve to know that on that day, President Trump also demanded that I choose between him and the Constitution. Now voters will be faced with the same choice. I chose the Constitution. And he went on to say that he believes anyone who puts themselves over the Constitution should not be president. Weijia, he's going up against his old boss, Donald Trump, who is the current frontrunner. You have covered both Trump and Pence. What do you make of it? 
Well, I think their relationship really started to fray, obviously, during the 2020 election when President Trump was insisting that um, the vice president not certify the election, which he ultimately did. But I don't know that that's enough um, to really accomplish what Pence is trying to do now, which is to put distance between himself and former President Trump. And my question is for voters, whether that came too late, Um, because, yes, he is slamming Trump now. He wrote in his book um, about, you know, the the dangers that unfolded on January 6th, about how he felt about it personally. But it took so much time, Jill, for him to get to that point where he was willing to be so explicit about it. So where was this Pence on January 6th or 7th or 8th or 9th? Where was the rebuke then? And I think a lot of people wonder, you know, how can you serve and support a president for so long? And now all of a sudden, um, it's easy for you because you you have this time that has passed to slam him and criticize him. Of course, Pence has addressed this himself. He has said, look, um, you know, the, the man that I chose to go work for and work under is not the same. You know, he says that uh, President Trump promised to govern as a conservative. And now, obviously, he has evolved. And, uh, you know, Pence would say that he's a lot more extreme than than what he sign, signed up for. I do think it's interesting, Joe, just how much space Pence is trying to put between him and Trump. For example, I was looking at his bio for Pence 2024, which is pretty lengthy, telling his life story. And there's one line, two lines, Um, about uh, his time serving the country as vice president. He said, President Trump selected Mike Pence as his running mate in July 2016. They were elected by the American people on November 8th, 2016 and entered office on January 20th, 2017, period. I mean, this is the vice presidency. You would think that this is something that he would want to put front and center at his bio to show that he has so much experience in the West Wing, and that's not the case because he wants to, um, you know, make the case that he is not affiliated in any way anymore with Donald Trump. So I'd love to get some insight into some of these candidates. You covered, of course, President Trump and President Biden. You had some pretty public tips with President Trump, particularly during the pandemic press conferences. As viewers, we mostly just get the sound bites. So what was it like covering him in person? I think the hardest part about covering Trump in person was obviously just the flow of of breaking news and, um, you know, trying to keep up with all of the things he was saying and the policy changes he was making via Twitter, um, you know. But I think the pandemic Joe was a totally different experience because I really felt for the first time that the the reporting that we were doing um, was helping people to make life or death decisions. And so I would say covering Trump specifically during his last couple of years in office um, was a really challenging and difficult because we had to um, fact check him in real time, essentially. We had to be able to say, actually, this is what the doctors are saying. This is what the data points to. And this is what the facts are to be able to call him out during these press conferences. So I think, you know, we were constantly studying, constantly trying to make sure we had, you know, all of his former quotes in front of us, 
all of um, what the doctors were saying. And so it was really stressful, honestly, because I would stay up at night wondering like, what, what questions do I have to get answered? tomorrow for my mom, for, you know, moms out there who, who wonder what they should be doing with their children. Um, it, we were living it too, which made it even more difficult because usually, as you know, we can separate ourselves from the story pretty quickly. And we, we get into a mode where we are reporting it out and just trying to, um, you know, uh, stick to our reporting, but we were living the pandemic as well, which was new for everybody. So I think that made it challenging. But in one word, Jill, I guess I would say stressful. (laughs) You know, it's funny you say that, though, because I have such a vivid memory in the beginning of the pandemic. um, My family and I moved out of Manhattan. We moved in with my in-laws on Long Island. And we were just trying to get information. And I remember being glued to the TV during those press conferences. And whenever I think of you, actually, and your reporting, I think of the early days of the pandemic because of that very reason, because I remember watching and thinking, okay, she's going to get some info. We're going to find out some actionable information because we really, as you said, we were all living it and making decisions for ourselves, for our parents, for our kids. Uh, So really, thank you for that. Thank you for saying that. Yeah. So polls show that most Americans don't want President Trump or President Biden to run again. Many Americans are concerned about Biden's age. He is currently 80 years old. What is it like covering him? Covering President Biden is drastically different from covering President Trump in so many ways. And I think for me, you know, it, mostly it's it's access to the president because when you cover a beat of course, we cover the White House. You want to get as close to your subject as possible. And Trump was there. He was, you know, in the room with us almost every day towards the end of his presidency, um, at least during the COVID era. Um, He was, you know, talking to us outside when he was about to board on a chopper, sometimes for one hour. And I think, you know, going from that to President Biden has been really jarring because he has an incredibly tight team around him. And I don't just mean the press shop and the communications team, but his senior advisors are really, you know, also have a big role in orchestrating how much time he spends talking to um, reporters and the media. So honestly, it's frustrating to cover President Biden because we would love, of course, more access to him. We would love to be talking to him a lot more often. We would you know, I wish he would sit down for more interviews, not necessarily with CBS News, although that would be wonderful, but with um, really any major outlets. And if you look at the data, we have a White House historian and, and she um, tracks all the interviews and appearances on TV or, or, you know, even newspaper interviews that presidents have done. And he, he doesn't talk to the media a lot, which is um, increasingly frustrating, I should say. Uh, You know, honestly, I think he, if it were up to him alone, Jill, I think President Biden really likes talking to reporters. Um, He likes to engage. He likes to get his message across. And he can be feisty, too. He pushes back um, if he thinks a question is unfair. And he can handle a room full of reporters. We just don't get to see that a lot because there's such a tight ship around him. Let's get to some of our sponsors before we get to the speed read. And let's start with one of our new sponsors, 
hold on bags. It is more important than ever for us to make thoughtful changes that make a big impact when it comes to caring for the earth. And it could start with small things, including what type of sandwich or trash bags you use. And we are very happy to be partnering with Hold On. That is one word, Hold On. It is a company that's all about finding a better way to go about our daily chores. Trash bags and kitchen bags are necessary staples, but it turns out that they don't need to be 100% plastic, which in most cases cannot be recycled. Hold On trash and kitchen bags are heavy-duty, plant-based, non-toxic, and 100% home compostable. We have been using them in our kitchen, and it really feels good to be part of the movement away from single-use plastics. They break down in weeks and not centuries. Uh, They are offering a special deal to the Mo News audience to shop plant-based bags and replace single-use plastics all over your home. Visit holdonbags.com slash monews or enter monews at checkout to save 20% off your order. I will mention that we have been using Hold On Bags in my house. My husband didn't really know what they were. And after a couple of weeks of using them, he's like, I love these bags. What what are these? Where did you get them? Because they feel great. Sustainability has never been more simple. That is Hold On Bags, H-O-L-D-O-N bags.com slash monews or enter monews to receive 20% off your order. Now to Athletic Greens. We're always talking about health trends and food trends here on the podcast, and it can be hard to get all of your nutrients. One way to try to get the important ones is Athletic Greens AG1 powder. It's just one scoop with a glass of water in the morning. It's easy and it's quick and it lets you get on with your day knowing that you've gotten over 75 important ingredients including tons of vitamins and minerals. And it also has pre and probiotics to support digestion and gut health. With your first purchase of AG1, Athletic Greens is giving Mo News listeners a free one-year supply of their vitamin D and five free travel packs of AG1. Just visit athleticgreens.com slash monews to take advantage of this offer. You could get a discounted monthly subscription or you can try it one time for just a month. Again, that is athleticgreens.com slash monews, M-O-N-E-W-S, for this special deal. Okay, time now for the speed read from the New York Times, a follow-up to the Ukraine dam collapse that we reported on yesterday. Experts say cautiously that an internal blast is probably what breached the Kakovka Dam, a deliberate explosion inside of the dam on the front line of the war in Ukraine, most likely caused it to collapse on Tuesday. That is according to engineers and munitions experts. They say that structural failure or an attack from outside of the dam were possible, but less likely. Ukrainian officials blamed Russia for the failure, noting that Moscow's military forces, which have repeatedly struck Ukrainian infrastructure since invading last year, control the dam along the Dnapro River. And that means that they were in a position to detonate explosives from within. Again, that is according to Ukraine. Russian officials in turn blaming Ukraine for it, but not elaborating on how that might have been done. It may be that at least one side here is telling the truth, but in the midst of a war zone, there is little prospect of an independent forensic investigation into the dam's destruction, which flooded a really wide area downstream. Meanwhile, President Zelensky is warning that hundreds of thousands of people do not have normal access to drinking water. And Weisha, it's only made this war more devastating and more expensive. Emotion, I always talk about how divided things are right now in D.C., but we are starting to see some progressive Democrats and some conservative Republicans who agree on very little else 
questioning how much military and financial support the U.S. is going to be giving to Ukraine, does it seem like a real possibility that the U.S. could stop supporting them? Well, I don't think the lawmakers on those margins um, have the numbers to you know, decide whether or not Congress will stop funding um, Ukraine's efforts. I think you know President Biden has made so clear from day one that the U.S. is essentially all in on this. Of course, it's not up to him um, because Congress has to approve the funds, but he can pick up the phone. He can lobby. He can make clear what his position is um, and, and get members on board with what he wants. And he has said from day one that the U.S. will be there. Um, I personally asked the White House and officials, like, what is the cap? How much is the U.S. willing to spend is there a red line? Are you going to hit a number and then say, sorry, that's all? Um, and they have, you know, not engaged on any kind of number. The president has been asked about this too. And he always says that, you know, this is something you can't put a price tag on because it is um, democracy that we're talking about. And, you know, sending a message to autocrats that, you know, you can't bully other countries into submission. But you're right, Jill. I mean, the fact is, we just saw what unfolded with the U.S. budget and with the debt deal and with the maneuvering and all the money pushing around that we had to do to protect U.S. interests and and, and United States programs. So I think, you know, as lawmakers start hearing from constituents, perhaps that's what's going to make a difference if voters start calling the offices and start saying and asking questions about how long we are going to give funding to Ukraine. But right now, the White House's position hasn't changed, and that is they will continue to support Ukraine. Okay, now onto some media news from Semaphore. Chris Licht will be stepping down as the CEO and chairman of CNN. Amy Antilles, Virginia Mosley, and Eric Scherling are going to be acting as the network's interim leadership team. This is according to an email that David Zasloff, the CEO of Warner Brothers Discovery, sent to the newsroom on Wednesday. In the email obtained by Semaphore, Zasloff wrote that the job, quote, was never going to be easy and that Licht had poured his heart and soul into it, but that unfortunately things did not work out the way that we had hoped. As Moshe and I have talked about on the podcast before, a wide-ranging profile in The Atlantic titled Inside the Meltdown at CNN triggered the final crisis of confidence in Licht. Uh, some analysis from Semaphore's Ben Smith. He writes, Licht's departure is on the surface a management debacle and a reminder that you can't run a television network if you can't keep your key asset, the high-profile on-air talent, happy. And now it's a hard management crisis to fix because Warner Discovery Chief David Zaslav has been half-running the place all along, and I am not sure who will want to half-run it with him now. But it is also a strategic debacle in which Chief talk about shifting CNN from anti-Trump confrontation toward an imagined center simply didn't find an audience and the most obvious explanation is the one that people in media have been saying so long that we've stopped believing it. Cable news is in a broad secular decline, and even the best managers and executives won't be able to reverse that. Smith writes, uh, what replaces cable? Nothing in particular and everything. A colleague recently pointed me to a remarkable statistic. The most popular podcast in America is, as you would expect, Joe Rogan's, but that popularity only gets him 5% of the fragmented market. And this is among people who have a favorite podcast. 
So, you know, it's a bet in some ways, Weijia, that Moshe and I are making here at Mo News. But the truth is, is that there is probably room for all of us. You're at CBS, which reaches millions of people a day across various platforms. And in most cases, it is reporters like you at a lot of these legacy networks that are really breaking news. Well, I'm biased, obviously, but I do um, agree with you that um, I think what we have to remember is that this is not necessarily a new conversation. When um, the internet arrived, everyone was talking about how it was going to destroy traditional platforms and broadcast news. Um, When podcasts arrive, a similar worry happened. And I think that we have to remember that News consumers are always evolving too, and we have to meet them where they are. But to your point, one thing doesn't change, and that is that we need content. We need journalists. We need people to report stories out. We need people to be asking tough questions of those who um, are in power. And so I think the vehicle has shifted. Um, you know, we have our content on so many different platforms. We have podcasts. We have, um, you know, a a streaming service. We have broadcasts. And I think it's just about meeting the consumers where they are, like I said, to make sure that we are evolving with them um, and to recognize that people want different things. And the most important thing that we can give them, though, out of all of this is information. And, you know, that is our true weapon for survival, which is information, not confirmation of biases that they already have, but information that really takes journalists to go out and dig for. And that's, I think, you know, going to be what keeps us afloat and, and what allows us all to have a piece of the pie. Okay, and in much lighter news from CNN, Starbucks is going full steam ahead with its controversial line of olive oil-infused coffee drinks, expanding one of its biggest new product launches in years to many more states and cities. Okay, Weijia, this is the type of controversy that I could get behind. (laughs) Yes, I'm with you. The so-called Oleodo drinks, I think that's how you pronounce them, debuted in the United States in March to somewhat negative reviews. They were available in California, Illinois, New York, and Washington, and will now be sold in more cities in those states. They're actually the brainchild of former CEO Howard Schultz. He met an olive oil producer last year who introduced him to this practice of consuming a tablespoon of olive oil every day. He picked up the habit himself and then wondered if he could combine it with his daily coffee routine. And he asked the Starbucks beverage team to see if they could pull it off. On this menu, an oat milk latte and a toffee nut iced shaken espresso. Every drink, though, is prepared with a spoonful of olive oil. It first launched in Italy earlier this year. I have never heard of this. Have you tried it? (laughs) Definitely not. But I know that it is popular to drink um, in some um, areas of the world. I can tell you that every morning my husband starts his day with a bulletproof coffee. So he puts in coconut oil and MCT oil and butter, or I should say ghee, um, into his coffee and he drinks it. So I get, you know, the benefits, but as far as the taste goes, I don't know that I can get myself to a point where I'm just drinking olive oil. 
But I think that's why, like, if you're drinking a toffee nut iced shaken espresso, are you really going to taste the olive oil? Probably not. It's going to taste delicious with tons of sugar, right? The New Yorker apparently wrote that it tasted like a large spoonful of (laughs) olive oil and coffee. Grub Street said that the hot latte tastes like the smell of toast. Also noting that there was an odd film that lingers on one's tongue after the drink is gone. (laughs) Um, But With the rollout, it means that nearly a third of Starbucks company-owned stores are going to have this on the menu. So it'll be interesting to see if uh, perhaps it'll take off. I mean, I will keep an open mind. I... When this comes out, Jill, we're going to go, we're going to go try <laughs> yeah. one at the same time. Okay, time now for On This Day in History. On June 8th, 1864, Abraham Lincoln was nominated for another term as president during the National Union Party's convention in Baltimore. The National Union Party eventually became the Republican Party. On this day in 1949, George Orwell published 1984, his nightmarish description of a totalitarian society set in the year 1984. It is one of the best known novels of all time. And it is also where we got the phrase, Big Brother is watching you. I wonder what he would think about the year 2023. I mean, did you just see that crazy um, launch from Apple, the head <laughs> headset? and the glasses and just how far we've come with technology. I am curious about when we get to that point where we could just put on goggles and interact with, you know, a screen over here, a screen over there, um, what that is going to do to what people already think about surveillance and sort of, you know, what, what is looking back at you if you're willing to, to look into that. Or just the idea of being present, (laughs) you know, present with your kids. I I try all the time to put my phone away, but if it's just as simple as goggles on your face, I can imagine it's going to be that much more difficult. Okay. Also, in light of Tina Turner's recent death on this day in 1985, HBO held a primetime Tina Turner concert. It was simulcast in FM stereo. Wow. I actually had to Google to make sure that HBO was around back then because I actually <laughs> thought it was it came on the scene a little bit later, but it, it was in fact a thing. But I think back then it was like, you know, it was really expensive. I remember if we stayed at a hotel, one of the big draws would be like, we have free HBO um, because it was not accessible to most people unless you were willing to pay for it. But yeah, um, I think maybe that's why, because it wasn't as common as it is now. All right, Weja, um, thank you so much for coming on this podcast. Before we go, though, I just wanted to ask you a few more questions. First of all, what are you working on now? I have been working on a story about broadband access. My family's from West Virginia. My parents don't have access to um, broadband uh, Wi-Fi at their house. And, you know, one of the big pieces of the Biden administration's infrastructure law was to uh, basically get the country up and running, um, hopefully within five to six years to have universal access to to broadband. And so I wanted to do a story about it to sort of see what the challenges are, to talk to people who don't have access to it, to see, you know, how that impacts their life. And Jill, they really feel like they're getting left behind because there is this huge gap of those who have it and those who do not. And for all this talk about competing with China and other, you know, um, huge economies, 
even the Commerce Secretary who we interviewed admitted that this is setting us back because you can't really tap into the best talent and give them the resources that they need from a young age if they don't even have access to the internet. So I think it's a really interesting story. It's airing on CBS Mornings um, on Thursday morning. Of course, it'll be available all day long. And I'm sorry for the plug, but I'm also not. Sorry. No, that's it's so incredibly important. <laughs> and I think it's one of those stories that unfortunately, a lot of journalists who are located on the coasts and in big cities don't necessarily realize is even a thing. Right, exactly. I think that um, there are millions, tens of millions of fellow Americans who don't have access to broadband. I think during COVID, we saw that because, you know, a lot of children who had to Zoom, for example, or um, work online, they had to go to fast food restaurants and park in the parking lot just to have a hot spot. And we actually interviewed one woman who just to send emails, we physically got in her truck and drove up the hill so she could find a hotspot so she could send work. And so you can see easily how this is setting people back. And I think you're right. We take for granted because I get annoyed when I see the circle of death just for like 10 seconds. And I'm like, why aren't you loading yet? But the reality is some you know, people don't even have that luxury because they don't have access at all. All right. So we'll look for that later today. Um, on a personal note, I'm just wondering, given all of your success and and just having this front row seat to history, have you ever had a pinch me moment where you're just like, I cannot believe that this is my job or this is my life and that I get to witness this? You know, it happens all the time still, even though I've been covering the White House um, for years now. I think the first time that I wrote on Air Force One and I realized, you know, this is the plane that transports the president who is also on this plane. It was an out-of-body experience because I was born in China. I came to America and now I can cover the president in this way. It really is, you know, a dream and it's really what makes this country so incredible. Um, so I don't take it for granted. You know, something smaller where I'm just on this, you know, in the in the South Lawn, which is the backyard of the White House, and watching the President and First Lady, um, you know, get on Marine One to go take a trip, having an opportunity to shout a question at him. All these moments I never take for granted. And the novelty has not worn off at all. And I, I don't think it ever will. Uh, I'm curious, do you have any advice for young people or anyone who's looking to get into this industry? So I started in local news. That would be my number one piece of advice, which is to start in local news. Because a lot of times, you know, I've met so many younger journalists who say, well, I don't want to do that. I don't want to move to a small city in the middle of nowhere. Um, I want to go right to New York or D.C. or L.A., which is great. But like, why would you want to make your mistakes in those big cities where, you know, the stakes are much higher? I think you really get so much more opportunities if you start small and work your way up and really get your hands dirty and, you know, make mistakes so you can learn from them. And the second piece of advice is, you know, I was raised thinking if you just do the work, the work will speak for itself. And it took, you know, until I was in this job, probably to realize that's not true. I mean, nobody's going to look for your work. You have to be your own advocate. You have to make sure the right people who are making decisions are seeing your work. 
So don't let the work speak for itself. You have to speak for yourself. You know, we're both um, working moms. We both have young kids. Um, Your job is uh, certainly more demanding than mine is at this point. But I, even I, working from home, do struggle with being a working mom and trying to balance that with being really present for my kids. Just during this podcast, we both had (laughs) our daughters busted (laughs) as evidence of just kind of what we're going through. I'm curious, um, do you find it challenging? Do you struggle with, with being a working mom with two young kids? Oh my gosh, it is so hard. And I don't have to tell you that, but yes, I do struggle every day. I wish you know, whoever coined the phrase boss babe or like whoever, um, you know, sold this idea that you can have it all and you can do it at a hundred percent the whole time. I wish that we could retract that because the fact is, you know, we don't need to be boss babes all the time, right? Like it's okay to be tired. It's okay to realize if I'm going to go a hundred percent at work, that means I'm not going to be a hundred percent at home or vice versa. And I think it takes, you know, it takes a lot of planning and an amazing partner and just, you know, to, to be able to do it all. And you can do it all, Jill. Of course, we both are, but, you know, not at the same time. <laughs> like something's got to give at some point. And you have to be graceful with yourself, I think, right? Because we're so hard on ourselves that so you want to do everything perfectly all the time. I think that's a really good point. And you know what? It is the support system. And and I it took me a while, but I've learned to ask for help and to say, I'm not going to be here at this time. I I need help. I need coverage. I've talked about this before. My mom comes over every single afternoon to help with my two kids. So that way I could record the podcast uh, and, and I wouldn't be able to do it without her. Um, Weisha, thank you so much. It has been awesome to get your perspective, not only on the stories that we covered, but just on your career and your experience as a mom. So I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. Um, you're right. We were colleagues at CBS. Um, when I started at, on the evening news, Moshe was the executive producer. So, you know, I will forever view him as a boss man. <laughs> and, um, but no, it, it's really a joy to come on with you because I feel like I have coffee with you guys every morning. So it's cool to be able to do it in this way. Oh, well, I really appreciate that. And I know Mosh does as well. We do want to thank you for listening to the Mo News podcast. Follow us and subscribe so you don't miss an episode. Review us in the App Store so we can continue to grow. Call us 1-800-711-MOSH. And don't forget to follow us on Instagram at Mosh, M-O-S-H-E-H. All right, bye, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Mo News Podcast.